0: joy of the Lord is our strength. So let's stand and create our sorrows for some other beautiful things that are in the Spirit, all right? Fruit of the Spirit, love, hope, joy, peace.
1: a seat. Uh, Right before I came up, I got a text message from one of my closest friends growing up. Um, His wife's mother, uh, who has been battling from pneumonia from COVID, just passed away this morning. And it's just, it's one of those reminders that we live in a broken world where our bodies break down. And and for, for as many kind of victories over that, As many times as we have seen somebody heal from it, it's a sobering reminder that we live in a broken world. And so, Father, I just want to begin this morning in prayer, if you'll join me. Father God, I lift up every single man, woman, and child right now who are staring their mortality in the face. I lift up every single one of your image bearers this morning whose bodies are breaking down, or, or perhaps who, are, uh, who will not see this evening. God, we don't want to live flippantly as if we have an infinite amount of days. We recognize that these bodies were never intended to take us into eternity, but we still grieve. We grieve as those who live in the midst of a broken world, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And so I lift up Monica and I lift up Chad and I lift up those who are left and we grieve the loss of Monica's mom. I grieve with those who are grieving today over the loss of life uh, in Afghanistan. We grieve with those who are still grieving the loss from the falling of the World Trade Center Towers 20 years ago. Those who are grieving the loss of a loved one whether they be moments or years apart. And Father, we pray that you would meet us in the midst of that as we have a sobering conversation today about life in a broken world where persecution exists. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. All right, so thank you. Um, it's interesting. I mean, the last couple of days have been melancholy just in the reminder of what we walked through 20 years ago. I'm not sure. I mean, for most of us probably at this point know yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And for me, it brought back up memories back when I was a, a Newport Beach lifeguard. And I remember waking up the, the morning of 9-11 to get ready to go sit at Main Street, Newport Beach, to go sit in a tower. And as I'm getting ready, we turned on the TV and we saw the the first tower burning. Um, And it was like something out of a a movie, right? And I, I just remember how over the course of those 24 hours, from watching the second plane hit and kind of realizing that this was not an accident, that this was on purpose, to the first tower falling and can I just be real honest? There was this part of me that was excited to see that because it was like something out of a movie and then there was a part of me that was disgusted with the fact that there was, because I realized it wasn't a movie and those were human beings' lives. Those were, I, I, I imagine I'm probably not the only one who had to like battle with, oh my gosh, what on earth is going on? And I remember waking up on September 12th in a world that seemed very different than the one I'd woken up in 24 hours earlier. It was a world in which suddenly I did not feel nearly as safe as I had felt 24 hours earlier. And it's not like evil and people wanting to hurt other people just sprang into existence as if it had never existed before 9-11. But for the first time in my lifetime, I was, I was faced with that on our own soil. Yes, that happened all around the world, but it had never come here. And so it, it almost felt like my own little world was off its axis. And I was trying to figure out how, how do I navigate a world that has changed for me overnight. For those of you who weren't alive 20 years ago, it's probably akin to that first week of all of the lockdowns of COVID where we begin to go, how on earth did this happen? What on earth is going to happen? How do we proceed from here? And we're still in in the aftermath of kind of figuring that out. But it's a good reminder. We live in a broken, fallen world. And there are people who desire to harm us. There are people who will rejoice when we suffer pain. As crazy as that sounds. And I can imagine that that sense of almost an out-of-body, how do I fit in this world, and what on earth do I do with all of these churning emotions, that was probably similar to the kind of feeling that Jesus' disciples had as they left the upper room and as they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was bringing them They had no idea. He was going to pray to God, to the Father, prior to being arrested, prior to his, you know, just ridiculous trial that ultimately led to his execution. And they're already reeling because the first plane for them had hit. And that first plane was as they're sitting in that meal excited about what the future might hold. They'd entered into Jerusalem with great expectations. And e- and Jesus, I almost said Ethan, that's hilarious. Because, yeah. My son is Ethan. Uh, as Jesus looks in his disciples' eyes as they're sharing this meal, he goes, guys, I want to warn you, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't follow. And that was like the first plane hitting because it pricked their sense of security. It pricked their sense of all is right, and this is all moving the direction it's supposed to. And that first warning was like that first plane hitting the first tower. And they're left reeling. And as they walked out of that meal, where Jesus has said, hey, listen, guys, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you and to be an advocate for you and, and, and you guys need to abide in me like, like a branch does in a vine through the enablement of that Holy Spirit so that you can produce spiritual fruit and continue to do what I've been doing. On the heels of that, Jesus knows that the second plane is coming, the second hit is coming, that their world is going to collapse in ways that at this moment they cannot possibly fathom. And so he warns them on the heels of looking at his disciples and saying, guys, if you abide in me and through the enablement of my Holy Spirit, you will be able to obey my commands. And just in case you forgot, here's the gist of my commands. Love one another. All the fruit of the Spirit boils down to one thing, love. It's like a light that when it's refracted has lots of different colors But ultimately, it it all comes back to loving one another. This is how the world will know you're my disciples, by the way you love. And so on the heels of that, Jesus, as they're walking along on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looks at his disciples and he, he begins to warn them that another plane is coming, that another hit is coming, that their world is going to be even more shaken than what they could possibly understand. And so right on the, on the heels of saying, this is my command, love each other, Jesus begins, and we're going to start in chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If, you obeyed my, or if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they don't know the one who sent me. If I hadn't come and I hadn't spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. They wouldn't have known any better. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well because he came as a representation of his father. And in rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting the father who sent him. If, they had, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But as it is, they have seen all of those works, yet they had both hated me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me, without reason. Now, when the advocate comes, and that word advocate is paraclete, so when the the one who comes alongside, the comforter, the counselor, the one who stands and speaks up for us, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So in other words, I'm sending you to continue to be my ambassadors, just as I have testified to the Father, you are going to go out and be my representatives, you're going to continue the work that I began. All of this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. Boy, doesn't that sound like what was driving many of the, the men who hijacked those planes, thinking that they were offering a service to God by snuffing out other human life. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. So here's the gist of what Jesus tells his disciples, this very encouraging message to them as they're walking along towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Guys, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Persecution is coming. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Now we have to ask why. Why would persecution come? It's not because Jesus' disciples were overtly awful human beings. It's not because they were deserving of it. It's because of their identification. They were no longer identifying as citizens of the kingdom of the world. They no longer submitted to or or, or claimed allegiance primarily to the nation of Israel or to the, the kingdom of Rome. They claimed allegiance primarily to the kingdom of God. They were living as citizens of the kingdom of God in a world that did not call that the Father their Lord. In many ways, in a world that lived at odds with the Father. And Jesus has told them, hey, you're going to need to abide in me, and if you abide in me, then you will bear fruit. Or we used the analogy last week, Merv gave me this this morning, so he just handed me a light bulb to remind me of, God bless you, Merv, to remind me that we are called to bear light, that you and I were each created to bear light in the darkness. And if we abide in him and he in us and the Holy Spirit is working in us, we will bear light. Oh, this is kind of fun, huh? All because I said you have to remain biting in, and Merv's like, no, you don't. <laughs> when, you get, when you get trolled by your 90-year-olds, you know your love, right? Like, God bless you. I want to know the kind of stuff you were pulling in World War II, like messing with guys in your platoon. Anyway, we were called to, we were called to bear light, but think about this for a moment. The world is shrouded in darkness. The world has been darkened by sin. And when you flip the light on in a room where people who have acclimated to the darkness are residing, how do they tend to respond? This is the interactive portion. Hey, turn that light off. Pretty much, yeah. That's, that sounds very much like one of my boys. Stop it, turn it off, right? It hurts your eyes. It feels, it feels like you've been accosted when somebody turns the light on. And so it's no wonder that they lash back out, sometimes with violence. Jesus put it this way: he Said, you know, the, the, you know or, or John in John 3.16, God so loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He said, But this is the verdict. He's come as a light in the darkness, but men loved darkness. Because their deeds were evil. And so they shy away from the light. Is it any wonder why when we live out of, when we reflect the values of our king, when we live as citizens of the kingdom of God in the midst of a world that lives for themselves, they wouldn't appreciate it and they would want to silence it. I'm going to turn that off so that you're not distracted by shiny objects. Admittedly, I'm the one who will be more distracted, so I'm turning it off for me. Thank you for allowing me to not. Um, This wasn't the only place, by the way, that Jesus warned that persecution was going to become a way of life. And here's here's the first point I really want you to get. Persecution is not something that we should be surprised in when it comes. Persecution is the natural byproduct, the natural reaction. When we are living as image bearers of the kingdom of God, it is the natural reaction of a world that is living contrary to that. So we shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes. And this is something that Jesus warned his disciples right before he endured the the worst result of persecution by being... Nailed to a cross and bleeding out for us, but it wasn't the first time that he warned them that they would endure it. In fact, all the way back when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, can we go ahead and throw Matthew 5 up there for a moment? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Notice that word blessed. You're blessed if you're persecuted. We'll come back to that in a second. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because Oh, I'm sorry, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is, this is one of his first messages. I'm sure that killed. I'm sure people were excited about that, right? What? We're expecting a conquering king. What does persecution have to do with it? But Jesus knew early on, you follow me, you're going to endure major pushback. And it wasn't just him. He he warned his disciples all throughout their journey, guys, it's not going to look like what you expect. And in fact, what you're expecting to to get out of this, riding my coattails into Jerusalem, kicking Herod out, taking over his position of power, that's not what it's going to look like. You've got the wrong expectations. And so long as you're holding on to those, you're going to be discouraged when that's not what plays out. But Jesus wasn't the only one to warn about this. Paul is another one who who wrote often about it, who warned those who were following Jesus in these churches that were springing up all over uh, the world. that that he had helped plant, he was warning them, hey, listen, you're going to endure persecution. And in one of his letters to Timothy, he writes this. Can Can we throw that up there? He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, will be. If you desire to live a godly life, if you abide in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is working in you and is beginning to produce fruit, that is in keeping with the heart of God, you're going to experience persecution. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. One more. The Apostle Peter, writing to the church, he said, Beloved, he's referring to the church here, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that person made fun of me because I claimed to be a Christ follower. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Over and over and over again, we are reminded that persecution is not some random thing that just happens. Persecution is the natural response of a world when we begin to live as ambassadors of Christ. When we begin to reflect the light into the darkness, we shouldn't be surprised when the empire strikes back and tries to snuff it out. They did that with Jesus. They sought to shut him up and snuff him out, ultimately going so far as to kill him because the way in which he lived challenged the status quo, challenged their grip on power. And if we can be honest about anything right now, let's just be honest that we, as human beings, love power. And so much of what we attempt to do is to grasp hold of and then retain power. I'm watching it in the political field in ways that I've never seen before. Power struggles. The, the, the attempt to control things. This is nothing new. It it just is a different iteration of the same old game, the same old power struggle. And in living as an ambassador of Christ, Jesus is going, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. In fact, it didn't start with me. It started all the way back with the prophets. They killed the prophets. Jesus himself experienced persecution throughout his ministry to the point where they killed him. The early church experienced persecution over and over, so much so that almost every single one of Jesus' disciples was martyred for their faith. Why do we think that it'll be any different for us? So the first thing I want us to hear today, as we wake up into a world that looks very different perhaps from the world that we went to bed in two years ago before COVID happened, a world in which it feels like perhaps as Christ followers, we are being more persecuted. Maybe that's true. Probably is. The first thing I want us to remember is that Jesus warned us this would happen. This is the natural byproduct of living as an ambassador of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. The world doesn't want to bend a knee. The world doesn't want to to get in line, does not identify Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Therefore, they will push back against him. But the second thing I really want us to recognize is as hard as persecution is, and I'm not going to try to minimize it. I'm not going to try to pretend that persecution is fun. That we should, I mean, Jesus and Peter say that we should rejoice when we are treated poorly for the name of Christ, that we, we are blessed when we are persecuted. And that feels so crazy when you think about what persecution is. When you think about around the world, people losing jobs, some of them being disowned from families and communities, some of them being imprisoned, beaten, and in some instances killed for their faith. When you consider that, it's not something that we would naturally think to rejoice in. It's not something that we would think is a blessing. So why should we feel blessed? So the second thing I want us to recognize is that although and this is a really important caveat, God is not the author of persecution. God is not the one who says, I want you to be persecuted, I want you to lose your job, I want this to happen to you and that. God is not the author of that. Persecution comes when the world reacts against the light. When the empire strikes back, that's where persecution comes from. Those who are fighting back against God and fighting back against those who represent him. And I would suggest that there is a spiritual connotation to it that we will get into next week because we have a very real enemy who considers the world to be his. Yeah, Satan, there you go. The adversary, the accuser, the one who would love to see us stumble. And he knows his time is short, but he's trying to take as many of us down with him as he can. You don't believe me? Read Revelation 12. Paints a pretty stark picture of what we're living in. Again, we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But there is a reason why the world reacts so vehemently against Christ's followers. But I would suggest to you that although God is not the author of persecution, He has this uncanny ability to bring beauty from the ashes and to redeem painful, seemingly senseless tragedies. He has this ability to breathe new life into dead things. And so when it comes to persecution, God has a way of using persecution. And so there's a reason why Jesus and Peter both encourage us to rejoice. Let me give you three reasons why we can rejoice in persecution. The first reason is because they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us as well. That means that when people persecute us for our faith, when they mock us, when they unfriend us, when they treat us differently, when they laugh at us behind our back, if at some point we lose jobs or relationships over it, or maybe even our life, which might happen in our lifetime, we can rejoice in the fact that we are actually beginning to reflect the heart of Christ, that the fruit of our life is a sign that we are reflecting Jesus, that our light is shining in the darkness. Now, let me be very, very clear here though. There's another reason why people might mistreat us and push us away and unfriend us, and that is because we are a jerk. (laughs) Not talking about that. When you start acting like the rest of the world, when you start fighting like the rest of the world, when you start using your social media feed to attack other people, arrogantly, as if you are the one who has the right answer and they're stupid, And it's us versus them. That's how the world fights. And guys, when we start fighting against flesh and blood in the same way, we shouldn't be surprised if they unfriend us. Because you're acting like a jerk. I I think of Galatians, where Paul kind of juxtaposes the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of kind of living into our flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, of of following the Spirit. When we follow the flesh, it starts to produce fruit like, lust and, 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 and other sexual kind of stuff, but also hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfishness. And I think a lot of those words would describe the way in which both the world operates, but in the way in which some of us and some of us in this room have been operating, feeling justified because we feel like we have the right answer, And so we can browbeat somebody as if we're going to change their opinion. We're not changing anybody's opinion. All we're doing is proving to them that we're a jerk. And it's no surprise if they unfriend us or push us away. But when we lean into the Spirit, when we allow the Spirit of God like that electricity to begin coursing through us as we abide in Christ, it will begin to produce fruit like love. Love even, in, uh, 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 love even for people who are pretty stinking unlovable. Joy in the midst of a world that's pretty messed up, in the midst of a season of life where it may not look like what you expected your life to look like. Peace in the midst of a world gone crazy where you don't know what tomorrow is going to look like, where it feels like it's off its axis and this is not what you anticipated but still, there's this peace of keeping your eyes fixed on Christ and knowing he's... I, I had a chance to talk with an old friend last night who just came through a season of COVID. He was, he was hospitalized. He had pneumonia in both lungs. And although he was relatively young and in good shape, he didn't think he would leave the hospital. And as scary as that was, I asked him, you know, how, how, did, how did your... How did you feel through this? And he goes, you know, there was not a moment where I worried about whether or not I was inside of God's will. Like I felt like God was holding me and that regardless of what happened, I was at peace. That's the kind of peace that can only come from keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus rather than our eyes fixed on the wind and the waves. And when we, get, when we start looking at our circumstances, it's easy to sink down in them and become overwhelmed by them. Whereas when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in the midst of a world gone mad, in the midst of a nation, 20 years ago, after the, after the towers fell, our nation unified, and for a few months it was this beautiful Outpouring of unity. And I look at what's happened in these last two years as we've gone through another thing that has shaken the foundation of our nation. It's done just the opposite. It has absolutely fractured us. I grieve that. But even in the midst of that, can we have peace knowing that God is in control? We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Patience for people who are in process. You know anybody like that? If you don't know anybody like that, it's probably because you are that person for someone else. (laughs) Dee, I'm looking at you. I love you. Connie and I pray for you often. (laughs) Actually, Connie and Kathy pray for us often, don't they? Kindness, we could use a lot more of that. It's not something that we can tie that fruit on. It's not something that's going to just come from trying really hard to be kind. We can fake it for a little bit. But when you're trying to be kind to, to stupid people, to people who are undeserving, to people that you really don't like very much, that wears pretty thin pretty quickly and eventually you snap, right? When you're just trying to be good by your own strength, when you're trying to shine light because of a charge you got a little bit before, well, that lasts only as long as the charge lasts. And then. And then the darkness returns. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, and oh, oh, yeah, self-control. Could use a little bit more of that, right? These are the kind of things that come naturally from listening to the Holy Spirit and allowing him to work in us. And when that is how our life begins to look, it can only come from abiding in Christ. It can only come from the electricity. I'm gonna turn it on one last time. It can only come from the Holy Spirit's enablement because this light bulb in and of itself, look, this is where it's abiding right now. It's got a little thing at the end, so don't think that this light bulb just lights itself up. Only from our being anchored into Christ in the Holy Spirit's enablement can we possibly hope to love one another as Christ commanded us. And when we do, the world will push back because our lives shine Light into the darkness in ways that expose the emptiness, perhaps, of the way they're living. Frustrate the things that, it's easy to blame others who are different. We see that. We, we do it all the time to others. And in a world that does not call Christ Lord and Savior are going to look for people that they can blame. I think we're going to see a lot more of that as we progress, particularly around the area of Vaccines because there's a narrative right now that it is white evangelical Christians who are most opposed to and resisting vaccines, and some of you in here have not been vaccinated, and that is a choice between you and your Lord. It's not my place to tell you what to do, but I will say this. The narrative is going right now that white evangelical Christians are the ones who are choosing not to, and it's going to be their fault as we continue to experience COVID and as things continue to shut down. That's disregarding major other groups of individuals who don't look like white evangelical Christians but still have some hesitation there. But it doesn't fit the narrative. And and narratives are powerful things. And I'm going to warn you that persecution is going to get worse, not better. I want you to know this in advance so that when it happens, when churches begin to lose their non-profit status, when, when it becomes harder for us to gather together openly, maybe even becomes illegal, this won't surprise you. It's going to get worse, not better. But as we submit to our Lord and are shaped in His image and begin to bear light, it should come as no surprise that, they, that the world reacts against that. So the number one reason why we should feel blessed and rejoice is because we're beginning to reflect the heart of our God, but that's not the only reason. The second reason that we should rejoice and feel blessed is because throughout the history of the church, it has been persecution that has tilled the soil so that the gospel can advance, so that the kingdom of God can advance. Persecution has actually helped to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ into this world. It has from the very beginning. Think about the early church in the book of Acts. If you guys have read or studied the book of Acts, you know the story. Jesus tells his disciples, guys, I want you to wait in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to come. When the Holy Spirit comes, it will empower, he will empower you to be my witnesses beginning here in Jerusalem radiating into the larger area of Judea into the untouchables in Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth that's what they were called to do and the holy spirit came on the day of pentecost they were so compelled by the spirit's presence that they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they began to share the gospel in languages that they had never heard, but the the people that were there for the Feast of Pentecost understood the gospel in their own words or in their own language. They paid attention. Some people ridiculed them said, oh, they're just drunk. But multiple thousands of people came to know Christ that first day, and they continued to come to know Christ. And the early church began to experience this renaissance of, of, of favor in Jerusalem. They were sharing what they had with one another, so there was a a sense of generosity and togetherness. They were known for the way they loved one another. It's like the fruit of the Spirit was evident, and people took notice, and many people began to join the church. But here's an interesting little caveat on that. Those who came to call themselves Christ followers got really comfortable there in Jerusalem, and they stuck around. And so they were really good witnesses in Jerusalem, but they forgot about the whole Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is until the power brokers in Jerusalem began to push back, because they saw in this movement of people claiming a crucified king, a, a, a challenge to their own grip on authority, and so they began to push back. And it wasn't until the first Christian was martyred for his faith, for his refusal to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ, a guy named Stephen. It wasn't until persecution broke out against that early church that it became so uncomfortable for them to gather there that they were kind of scattered into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It must have felt to those early Christ followers like that was all the work of God dying in an instant. We can't be together. It feels like Jesus is losing. But if you continue to read the book of Acts, you begin to realize very quickly that that was actually, that persecution, although it wasn't God who made it happen, God used it to kind of like blow, you know, think of a dandelion for a second. All those seeds stuck together, pretty beautiful, pretty comfortable for the seeds. They're all surrounded by one another. Persecution was like the breeze that blew those seeds and scattered them. That was exactly what the church needed. Rather than it being the death of the church, it was the expansion of the church because the church was never about a building. The church was always about the people, the temples of God who had hope within themselves, who recognized Jesus as Lord and weren't afraid to share that faith with others. And that persecution prompted the early church to do what God had called them to do, and the church, meaning the, king, the, the people of God, grew exponentially. And in fact, we see this throughout the history of the church. Just a couple of, of people who spoke to this. There was, a, there was a, a Christian historian named Tertullian in the third century who was famously uh, wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs, those, martyr is a Greek word for witness, and it's interesting that the word for witness would be somebody who also witnesses through their death. So the blood of those who witness with their death is the seed of the church who helped the church to grow. A couple of centuries later, in the 5th century, another church father named Jerome wrote this. Persecutions have made the church of Christ grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. Persecution has helped the church to grow, not only from its infancy, but throughout the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. Persecution is what has caused the church to grow. It is what has tilled the soil and scattered the seed. And guys, I know that two years ago, when we got the the declaration from Sacramento that we could no longer meet in this building, it felt like a massive overstep. It felt like our freedoms were being removed and our religious freedom, something that we hold dearly in this country, was being impinged upon. And I know that many of you had a really, I had a really hard time with us not being able to gather together. And yet I cannot help but wonder if like that dandelion, if, if God wasn't behind, I'm sure he wasn't the author of that, but I wonder how, I, I, just, I just can't help but notice how God used that to remind us that we are not about a building. This Lighthouse Community Church is not a church because of our building. We are the church you are the church. You are the church. You are the church. You are the church. And over the course of the last two years, we've been forced to figure out what does it mean for me to be a Christ follower when I'm not just getting back into the light bulb and being surrounded by other photons of light? What does it mean to be salt when I'm not just able to congregate in the salt shaker? What does it mean when I'm being forced to be the church in my home with people who don't really want to be around My neighborhood with people that i if I had known they lived there, I probably wouldn't have moved in. With people over Zoom because we can't be together. I mean, what does it look like for us to be the church when it's not just about going to church? I hope, I've seen some really beautiful fruit that came out of these last two years. It's not something I would have chosen. We're still recovering from it. There's a lot of faces that, that are joining us right now but are, are, are not comfortable sitting here in these seats. And we love you and I'm so grateful you're part of our community. But we miss you. And as much as that persecution hurts and it feels a whole heck of a lot like persecution, it felt personal. But I just wonder how God has been and will continue to use it as we move forward. So, One reason we can rejoice is because people are recognizing the fruit of our lives so long as we're not just being jerks. Second reason we can rejoice is because persecution actually helps the kingdom of God to advance. The third reason that we can rejoice is that persecution can actually help to prune or purify the church of God. I love this quote by a historian named Edward, Gene Edward Vieth. He writes this, One of the greatest paradoxes of Christian history is that the church is most pure in times of cultural hostility. When things are easy and good, that's when the church most often goes astray. When Christianity seems identical with the culture, and even when the church seems to be enjoying its greatest earthly success, then it is weakest. Conversely, when the church encounters hardship, persecution, and suffering, then it is closest to its crucified Lord, then there are fewer hypocrites and nominal believers amongst its members, and then the faith of Christians burns most intently. In other words, when it is most comfortable to call yourself a Christ follower, then it's easiest to pay lip service to Jesus when we're not in fact following him. Go back for a couple of weeks. Remember when Jeff talked about the vine and the branches and how the branch loves to grow foliage? That's, if you didn't pick up on that, this is a really important point. The natural tendency of a branch off of a vine is to grow foliage because that will get it most sunlight. It looks really lush. And if you ever look at a, a, a branch that is untended, it'll grow more foliage than fruit. But the gardener's job is to clip away the foliage so it has just enough to get enough sunlight to grow the fruit. But it's the fruit that is most important. Guys, it feels like within the Christian church, we've been growing a whole heck of a lot of foliage here in America. It's been comfortable. And when it's easy to call yourself the Christ follower, then we put up all of the pretense but our hearts really aren't following him. But when it costs us something, it costs us our safety, it costs us our family, it costs us our job, it costs us our health, it might cost us our freedom, it might cost us our life. When that becomes the case, the foliage gets pruned away and we begin to see more fruit. And I got to tell you, The places in this world where the most fruit is being produced, where the most people are coming to know Christ, where the gospel is advancing most powerfully, are in those nations where persecution is at its worst. We've seen in China when the church is cracked down upon and people are imprisoned and beaten for gathering secretly, the church explodes. In the Middle East, where they will literally be put to death not just disowned, murdered for claiming Christ, the church is exploding. Whereas here in America, (laughs) they're starting to send missionaries here because they realize that we've lost our first love. We've become pretty darn lukewarm because it's been pretty comfortable, but we'll get to that in a second. You might ask, you know, okay, so persecution can be helpful, and persecution has played a part in the church throughout. But does persecution still exist in the 21st century? I mean, because we become way more tolerant, right? To which I would suggest to you the absolutely categorically no. Persecution still exists. In fact, persecution of the, of the Christian church exists more now than at any other point in history. Every year, um, this organization, Open Doors International, which tracks the church in the persecuted nations, and there's, they, they track about the top 50 nations where persecution is at its worst. Every year, they put out a study of, of what they've found, and this is called the World Watch List, as they're watching the top 50 persecuted nations. Here are some numbers from the 2020 World Watch List, which is the, the newest one that we have. According to what they have found, every day eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every single day, eight Christ followers around this planet will have their lives snuffed out because they're unwilling to renounce their faith in Jesus. Every week, 182 churches or Christian buildings are attacked in the name of shutting up the gospel. And every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. This is an average every single day. Just to drill down into these numbers just a little bit more. In 2019 alone, which is where where these numbers are coming from, 1,350 Christians were martyred in the country of Nigeria. Just in Nigeria. And then a little bit distant from that, in in the country of Central Africa, 924 Christians were martyred. So just in those two countries alone, over 2,250 Christians lost their life in one year. During that same time, 5,576 churches were attacked or closed in China. China. And over 2,000 churches were attacked or closed in Angola. In the Middle East, four out of every five Christians considers themselves to have experienced very high levels of persecution. Four out of every five. I can only begin to imagine what life will be like for Christ followers living in Afghanistan right now. Because just so you know, prior to us pulling out, even over these last 20 years where there's been stability. It was still the second-ranked country for the most persecution against Christ's followers, second only to North Korea. Now, my guess is it's probably going to retain number one as Christians are going to be continue to be arrested, hunted down, beaten, and ultimately murdered for their faith, I know, I know of several pastors who had the opportunity to get out, chose not to. They recognized that they were putting their lives on the line. They recognized that it probably would end up costing them their lives in the short term, not the long term. But they also recognized that it was for such a time as this that God had placed them there and they chose to trust Him more than they feared anyone else in that country And they chose to stay so they could continue to sow seeds of hope in a world that has gone dark. So yeah, persecution still exists. But this begs the question, well, what about here in America, right? What about here? Because it doesn't feel like we experience the same levels of persecution. And as much as it's felt like in the last couple of years that those numbers have ramped up, let's just remember where we live. and the the kind of atmosphere in which we have lived. I'm 43 years old. In my lifetime, the kind of things we're talking about, imprisonment for somebody's faith, being beaten because of somebody's faith, losing a life, being disowned, we we read about that out there, but it never touches us here. In fact, up until recently, we would consider ourselves a Christian nation. Some of us still do consider ourselves a Christian nation, although many of us are considering it more of a post-Christian nation, where the majority of people kind of go, "Ah, tried that, went to youth group, have the t-shirt, I'm over it. It used to be that our kids would pledge every day that we were one nation under God. I'll be honest, I'm still shocked that we still have on our money that in God we trust. Although for I think for most people, that God in which they trust is the very bill upon which it's printed, but that's another conversation for another day. It's telling that most political people who are running for an office while they're running love to highlight that they go to church, right? Because in America... Our faith has not been a peripheral thing where we're pushed to the outsides. It has actually been pretty central to what it means to be American. It's meant that it has been pretty comfortable to be a Christ follower in America for the majority of my life and I would imagine for the majority of yours. It doesn't feel like that right now. It feels like the tides are turning a little bit. I grieve that. But I also need to recognize the cost of being at the center, the cost of being the official religion of a nation. Because you think about the things that were done in the name of Jesus in the Holy Roman Empire, which was much more Roman Empire than it was holy. You think about the Dark Ages and the amount of atrocities that were done in the name of Jesus Christ. You begin to recognize that sometimes Christian nationalism Isn't a very good thing. Not sometimes. I have never seen Christian nationalism be a good thing. And we have been a pretty nationalistically Christian nation. And there's been some nice things about it. It's been pretty dang comfortable, but it's also produced a lot of foliage. Consider these words from a guy named Leonard Ravenhill. The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. That's what they experienced. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, popularity, and really loud motorcycles. Let me say that again. The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. When we begin to have Christian celebrities, boy, that, that's, that's, that's not a, um, yeah, that's a problem waiting to happen. When we begin to elevate people onto pedestals and whatever they say, you know, we're going to do, and, and is it any wonder why when they fall off the pedestals and we act surprised, When we begin to follow Jesus because we expect that it's going to protect us from discomfort, when Jesus said, as we're going to look at next week, in this world you will have trouble. When his own disciples, he was warning, guys, you are going to be hated. And yet we have made following Jesus into a prosperity gospel that says, God's greatest desire for you to be as healthy, wealthy, prosperous, and above all things, comfortable. Jesus didn't die so we could be comfortable. I grieve the way that it feels like the country I love is changing. I grieve that it doesn't feel like it felt two years ago where it felt like we were relatively unified. before. COVID kind of pricked our sense of security that we had regained after 9-11. I grieve that we can't go back to pre-9-11 where we all felt this sense of security. But the truth of the matter is we can't. And our world may feel a little bit off its axis. But the point that we have been driving at today is that persecution is not an accident. Persecution is the natural byproduct of living as followers of Jesus Christ in a world that does not call Him Lord. And as we do it more, we will experience persecution more. And as hard as it is to feel the discomfort of not having as much freedom to operate as we used to, it'll actually force us to really consider, what am I, why am I following him? What do I hope to get out of this? Who is he to me? Is he my Lord? Or is he just simply somebody I pay lip service to because my parents did, and they took me to church, and my pastor did, so I might as well as well? Are you just going along to get along? Are you, are you following Jesus because you want him to help you pay your mortgage? so that your kids will stay on the straight and narrow, so that you'll have a satisfying sex life in your marriage? Why are you following Jesus? Are you doing it because of what he can give you, or are you following him because where else can you go? He's the one with the words of life. Following Jesus is gonna cost us something, and I gotta gotta warn you, so you're not surprised when it happens. It will get worse, not better, particularly as we get closer to the end times persecution will grow worse. And as much as it hurts, as much as it feels like pruning, that's not necessarily a terrible thing when you consider that the pruning produces fruit. And so we're going to respond this morning and the only way that feels appropriate, and that is we're going to spend some time praying as a family. And I'm going to invite you to stand up where you're at and I'm going to invite you to, you can actually do this. Um, Stand up. Calisthenics, right? Stand up. We are going to clump up in groups of three or four, but I know that you guys are all a little bit rebellious, so you might want to go in groups of two or five, because you're just going to do your own thing. Gather up with a group of people, and let's spend some time praying around a couple of specific areas. The first area we are going to pray for is our brothers and sisters in countries where persecution is at its worst. Can we throw up, here are the top 10 nations where persecution is at its worst around this world right now. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, Yemen, Iran, and India. Those numbers I gave you of where people are losing their lives, these are the top places that's happening right now. Can we just spend a couple of minutes lifting up our brothers and sisters around the world for whom their freedom, their safety, and their lives are not guaranteed today, that they would not grow weary or lose heart. Let's just spend a few minutes praying for them. second thing um, we're going to pray about this morning is not—it it is for our, ourselves and the church in America. And guys, what we are not going to pray about is that God would protect us from persecution, but that he would redeem the persecution that we experience. That we, when we encounter pushback, when we encounter being ridiculed, when people write us off for our faith because we our faith is a crutch that we would not grow weary or lose heart particularly as we see it becoming more costly to follow Christ let's simply submit our lives and invite him to help himself to us that the way we live would radiate light in the darkness and that others would come to know him so let's continue to pray Thank you. And the final area that we're going to pray for this morning is for those who persecute us and those who stand opposed to Christ around this planet. Because let me remind you of something very, very important. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. And even those who stand opposed to Christ have been created in his image. And Jesus died for them as well. And so my prayer is that they would come to know him and call him Lord. That however it be, whether it be like so many are happening in the Middle East, where through a vision they have an encounter with Jesus. That's exactly what happened to Paul. Knocked him off his high horse. That's what's happening to a lot of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. They're having visions of Christ that are leading them to walk away from their safety and to call Jesus Lord. So my prayer is that Christ would reveal himself to those even around us, those in your own homes and neighborhoods and workplaces, those in those positions of power and authority in America and around the world who stand in opposition to Jesus, that they would come to call him Lord. Let's pray for them. Thank you. Father God, we know that you are not the author of persecution. But you are the only one who can redeem it and use it to prune and purify your church. That we might be a light and a a source of fruit that nourishes the nations and brings others to know you. God, we lift up those who are enduring opposition from sinful men and women around this world, that they would not grow weary or lose heart, but would keep their eyes fixed on you. And Father, we lift up those who stand in opposition to you. You love them. You love them as much as you love us, as hard as that is for us to accept or recognize. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break into their reality. And that at the end of times, although they might accuse us of being small-minded, they would see the way we live, see the way we love, and they would ultimately call you Lord. Help yourself to us. We lay down our addiction to comfort and security. And we, and we claim our dependence upon you. May we find our security, our comfort, and most of all, our hope in you. Glorify yourself in us, we pray. You guys, let's just go into a time of responding. These, these couple of songs that, that declare our dependence upon him and our willingness to be used by him.
0: This is how I find my battle. This is how I find my battle. This is how I find my battle. I worship you. This is how I find my battle. This is how I find my battle. This is how I find my battle. I worship you.
1: It's amazing how uh, when things seem darkest, when the waves seem biggest, when the storms that surround us seem most overwhelming, that is when our God seems the biggest. It's really easy when we fixate on the wind and the waves for Him to seem really small and hit really inconsequential. It's in times like this that we really need to refocus our eyes. Guys, in a second, you know, if you, have, if you have offering, you can give it in the back in the boxes. If you have prayer requests, we want to pray for you. You can either email them to pastorlighthousecommunity.com or you can just fill out a card and drop it in the back. If you want to get into a life group, we want to get you in one because they're starting up again. And honestly, if you are not in one, you're missing the best part of what Lighthouse has to offer. Way better than Sunday mornings. Way better than coming and listening to me is getting to listen to one another as you process through what we're learning. So if you're not in one, I I beseech you. That's a really fun old word. I I, I encourage you, I exhort you to get into one. Just let us know you're interested and we will find a spot for you. But let me now close with this reminder and this comes from the tail end of Hebrews chapter 11 which is the, the hall of fame of those who kept their eyes fixed on Jesus and what they accomplished the things that were so much greater than they could do, and I'm going to skip over all that fun stuff, and I'm just going to go to the tail end that we typically forget about. This is our reminder today. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even, even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Can't you see this preaching well in America? Come on, why don't we talk about this often? The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. And yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Their hope, like our hope, is a resurrected Lord who, as we will see next week, tells us, guys, in this world you will endure hardship and persecution, but you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world. Therefore, here comes the punchline, therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, here he's referring to all of those, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and he sat down ultimately at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Jesus, you are our hope. You are the one in whom we fix our eyes in the midst of a world that not only has gone mad, but stands in opposition to you. We are not embarrassed of you. We long for our lives to radiate light into the darkness. Some may mock us, some may write us off as small-minded, but for those who reach the end of their rope, who stumble in the darkness, we pray that the light that reflects off of our life would lead them to you. They would call you Lord. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Now Lighthouse, my family, Go be the light. Have a wonderful week. (laughs) Even when I don't see it, you're
0: working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. Stop working.